Welcome to Archaeology Books for Fun, a podcast where we explore books about archaeology, but anyone can enjoy. I'm your host, Tristan Harenstein, and with me as always is my co-host, Barbara Clark. Hey, everybody. So this time, if you listen to the end of our last episode, you'll know that we're going to do this a little bit different. Basically, along with the holidays and the holiday break, we didn't feel like we had time to get our reading done as well as recording and editing. So we are going to do kind of a special end of year or start of year episode like every other podcast out there is doing. But we've got some special stuff planned for you all today. But before we get into that, uh, as per usual, if you enjoy this podcast, please give us a like, a subscribe, a review, comments on, on YouTube. All are very helpful and it gives us that wonderful feedback that really helps us understand that people are enjoying this and what you're enjoying and everything as well. So we're thinking we're going to do kind of a bit of a, a recap episode today, just kind of talk about what we've covered and what we liked and what we thought about them. Before we do that, though, there is a couple pieces of relevant news to our current subject or to some of our books that we've talked about. One is that while we are learning about the antiquities trade and about uh, museums' responsibility with the antiquities black market and repatriation of said artifacts, I wanted to point out that there are constant news articles related to repatriation happening. I think that when our author, Roger Atwood, was writing Stealing History, it was not very common. I would be interested to know how this book has kind of impacted that and if it has, like, by drawing public awareness to the issue. Yeah, I don't know either. Uh, but things have at least started to shift, it seems. So just since we recorded our last episode last month, there have been three more articles released about repatriation. So one of them is Germany has re repatriated 75 ancient artifacts to Mexico, and 74 of those basically came from museums. One of them actually was seized because the person who was supposed to be receiving it didn't have a proper convenience for it. Well, good on Germany. Right. That's awesome. So one of the things the book has talked about is how Europe has lagged behind the U.S. in the dealing with this issue, and it seems like that has rebalanced at the very least. Maybe a bit more than that, because also Netherlands has returned several colonial-era artifacts to Sri Lanka. Oh, wow. And as we talked about in the book, colonial-era artifacts have been a sticking point. Yeah. Nobody wants to return those. They claim that they are maybe seized correctly or whatever, or they've had it long enough that it's theirs now. Whatever the case may be, these artifacts were seized after a siege and are now back where they came from. And so that's, you know, I want to give props to Netherlands for doing that, frankly, um, because even in the U.S., at least as far as I'm aware, the laws aren't retroactive. And so any colonial era artifacts taken or stolen from other places way back in the day are still free to buy and sell as much as you want. So the fact that they've done that and taken those steps is pretty awesome. Yeah, that's amazing. And as you were going through talking about all the justifications for why these museums feel they shouldn't return them, I just, it was hard not to comment. Yeah. Because <laughs> a lot of those are very, in my opinion, weak arguments. Yep, agreed. And then the final one is... The Virginia Museum of Fine Art has repatriated 61 artifacts to Italy, Egypt, and Turkey. Ooh, an art museum. An that's art museum. very cool, because that's one of the things I've noticed in this book, and I know we talked about it in our last episode, is just the difference between how artifacts or objects are perceived by art museums versus how they're treated by archaeological museums. And yep. context doesn't seem to be something that is 
as big a deal, I guess, with art museums. And who is the culture that owns it doesn't yeah. seem to be a concern. Yeah, so that's awesome. And so this was interesting because the both articles I saw were very careful to say that current employees were not implicated in these artifacts. They were bought by the museum in the, I think, 60s and 70s, it said. Uh, but both articles also were careful to note that the museum has over 50,000 artifacts in its collection and before this has repatriated six in, two, in 2004. Oh, wow. So despite their provocations of we are in full cooperation, this is a good thing, it doesn't necessarily back up by the numbers because there's no way that all 50,000, there's none of the, nothing in there that should go back. There's got to be something in there, Yeah, right? probably. I mean, I'm not going to fault the museum because they're right. at least starting to do the right thing. And maybe this will empower or at least encourage the staff who's currently there who have not been implicated right. <laughs> to go through the collections and find more. Right. And so this is a changing trends, I think. Yeah. Like you said, maybe these, the current staff is very open to this and wanting to deal with this. And there has been changes. We don't know the full situation there. And these kind of things, they're messy. They take time. Right. It's a lot of trying to figure out a middle ground or understanding other people's perspective that is very, very vastly different than yours. So it'll be messy, but yep. I think it's worth trying to figure out. So that's it for the repatriation news. But basically, keep an eye out for this stuff because it is all over the place lately. We're looking at almost weekly articles there for the last month. And uh, so then... I want to move on, since we're not discussing a full chapter or a full section of a book this time, I thought we could take a moment and talk about an article that was relevant to some of the concepts we've discussed this year. Yeah, this was actually an interesting article. Yeah, so shout out to my dad who found this article and told me about it. And then I said, you should send that to me. I think we might use it. So the article is titled, Ancient Maya Power Brokers Lived in Neighborhoods, Not Just in Palaces. And the article, you can go and find it on Science News if you want to check it out, sciencenews.org. Yeah, and it was written, oh, it's a recent article by Bruce Bauer in December 4th, 2023. Yep, so, at 10 a.m. even, the article yeah, says. Yeah, that's so. very specific. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was a very interesting article. Essentially, do you want to summarize it, Barbara? Or One of your my favorite Tristan quotes came to mind people are complicated mm -hmm. <laughs> in the past we've had this view that is very probably simplified well, it is simplified uh, about Maya society that there were these powerful rulers who ruled over very powerless commoners who just kind of obeyed and didn't have any choice in the matter archaeologists are now realizing that based on some really cool research using lidar and other in translation of yeah, Mayan text that there were it was more complicated that than that there were uh, essentially they refer to them as like neighborhoods or residential sites that I forget what they call them like almost like little little pods throughout mm -hmm. and they were led by kind of middle leaders or like clans maybe yeah little little smaller social groups yeah and in some cases there's evidence um within mayan culture as well as possibly or possibly with mayan culture but also in other cultures where the uh, reigning elites would send out other people to kind of rule in different regions so it, to me it kind of feels like Almost similar, more similar to our system, right? Where we have the federal government, state, then you have local municipalities, 
And then you might have your HOA, you know, kind of like that's kind of the closest comparison I could kind of think of that people might be most familiar with. Obviously, it's not a perfect comparison, but. Well, when I read this, I kept thinking of the description of Cahokia Society yeah. in Four Lost Cities and yeah. how, yeah, there, there may have been ruling elites, but these little sections were kind of autonomous in their own way, too. And part of these cities were farm fields. Um, also, maybe think of Anchor a little bit, too. Yeah, that's what I thought of as Anchor Wat. Yes, and Anchor Wat might be even a little more apt because, as the book talked about, cities and what cities look like in jungle environments were often quite different from what uh, Europeans were expecting to find for cities. Well, and I thought it was interesting, too, that this article, and this makes sense, they didn't have horses, they didn't have, like, a very what we would consider efficient means of communicating information between communities, right? It was either by foot or by water. And so it makes sense. And I remember talking about this in our podcast when we were talking about, um, it might've been Anchor Watt, but it wasn't like today where we have 24-7 information coming at us from our leadership. They were living their everyday lives, farming their land, doing their thing. So it makes sense that there would be some type of local leadership and system in place that would probably in some ways be even more important to them on their everyday on the everyday level than what the leadership far away was doing. And they were finding in occasions historically that that power of those individual segments would have been more and less at different periods as right. well. There were yeah. periods where the the ruling elites were all in power, but then there were segments where they almost weren't existent. And it was all down to these little um, sections of the city to rule and work amongst themselves. Kind of, again, a bit like what we have heard about how Cahokia might have run. Yep. It's a cool article and kudos to your dad for yeah. sending it our way. Moving on to kind of the meat of today's episode. I kind of thought maybe we should go through the books we've covered. Normally, we probably would do since this year, but since we haven't done this kind of episode before, we figured we would just do it since the podcast started. And I figure we can talk about the books just a little bit and what we what our thoughts on them are now. And then uh, maybe at the end, we'll say kind of what our favorite ones were, that kind of thing. Sounds good. Okay. So first and foremost, our very first book we did and the one that started this whole thing was The Dig. And so this is, you think of this as a historical fiction of the Sutton Hoo excavations in England. And it basically did a good job of describing archaeological practice of the time and the importance of these excavations to our understanding of people during the Middle Ages. And it also just did a nice job of humanizing a lot of the people involved in everything too, while only making up some smaller pieces. Right, yeah. And I think it did a really, a really, I enjoyed the fact that it talked about like, how unique of a situation this was for the time as far as the preservation and the fact that even after this initial excavation, years later, archaeologists went back in and could still see the effort that they made to preserve it. And at the time, they didn't have the information we have now about how things are preserved, how best to preserve sites and the fact that it survived, especially through a war. Right. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Yeah. And so our next book was Captain Kidd's Lost Ship, The Wreck of the Cata Merchant. This one came recommended to us by a coworker who we probably won't take his recommendations again. 
Um, the book was good, but it wasn't what we were looking for for this podcast. So we found out by the second episode that, oh, this was actually a dissertation someone had written. It wasn't meant to be necessarily digestible for general audiences. And it was difficult to get through. <laughs> yeah, but I will say I, I'm hoping we did a decent job of letting our listeners know what they could kind of skip or skim through and still get the gist. So if pirates and that time period interests you at all, still check out the book and maybe listen to the podcast just to get an idea of what you can kind of skim through to still be able to get the, the meat yeah. of the subject matter but and check it out if you can because it wasn't a cheap one either yeah yeah it was one of our pricier books which we try not to do right but, but yeah i still enjoyed the book overall had learned some fun things from that so i'm not yeah. pirates too down are on cool it. yeah <laughs> and i think some of the stories in there were just kind of funny history is messy yeah it was a very good example of mm -hmm. how history can be messy and how people can fall from might or yep. no notoriety. <laughs> right, right. Fall into notoriety. Yes, I mean. yeah. yeah. <laughs> he was an interesting character. He sure was. So our third book after that was our longest book so far that we've finished, I will say, I guess. And that was Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Modern Age. And uh, so, Oh, go, go ahead. ahead. I'll go just say, so this book followed the kind of the life cycle of four cities. So that was... Catalhayuk, Pompeii, Cahokia, and Anchor. I don't think in, I had the correct order there, but they were all there. And I liked some of the premise here that uh, we often treat these civilizations and these cities as, as lost and missing, where in reality they aren't. They None of them just disappeared. And uh, this actually tied back into the article too with the Mayan civilization. The article noted that, that, you know, these cultures don't just poof, they're gone. They become something different. They merge with other societies and bring some of that culture with them. So it just changes into something else. And then the premise also being that this is kind of a natural life cycle of these cultures and these cities. Yeah, I enjoyed the book and I know we had some critiques of it, but overall, I really enjoyed the premise. And I think the author did a pretty decent job of, you know, we're both archaeologists and we've studied these sites before. But I still felt like even so, they were able to give us insight that I was not aware of, right. you know. And so, like, especially Pompeii, once you read about Pompeii, you learned about Pompeii, you think, okay, cool, Pompeii, we get it. But they were able to provide a lot of information that I wasn't aware of, and I found that really enjoyable. Yeah, and we had some fairly serious critiques of the book, but those critiques don't necessarily take away from the overarching premise, which was very well laid out and thought out, I felt. Agreed. So moving on to our next book was In Small Things Forgotten, an Archaeology of Early American Life. And we picked this one because we had both read it early in our... Academic career. Our, not a career even, <laughs> I would say, but when we were learning... Our schooling. Archaeology, our schooling, yeah. <laughs> and I had actually even given it to my, my dad to help him kind of understand what it is we do. I should have probably done the same. <laughs> and I remember being very impressed by how approachable it makes the concepts of archaeology. And I was so I was interested to go back to it and see what I thought about it and what other people thought about it, too. And yeah, it holds up pretty it well. It does hold up. And it's still, I love the author's writing style. Yep. It's so wholesome and it's just cozy. Cozy. That's the one we maybe described it most of the time. Yeah. Dealt with basically historical archaeology 
It was one of the, the establishing books for historical archaeology is a specialty that deserves its own focus. Uh, this was a thing that was not established before this book, and it was actually heated debate for a long time. And he does a good job. Uh, the edited version of this book also does a very good job of approaching African-American archaeology, yes. which in the 90s, when he edited this version, that was a new concept, fairly new anyway. There had been some research, but not a lot yet. And so he worked on that. And though there are some smallish ways that it shows its age in the way it approaches those, I felt like it got its pass pretty well because it you could see that he was trying. Yeah, right? no, there wasn't. I, I think it holds up for the most part in general pretty yeah. well. And yeah, he was trying. And especially when you take it in the context of the time in which it was written, it's pretty groundbreaking. It's pretty remarkable yeah. that it holds up as well as it yeah. does. Even. Yeah. So then we move on to the final and current read for this podcast, Stealing History, Tomb Raiders, Smugglers, and the Looting of the Ancient World. And this one has been different. Yeah. The writing has been fantastic, but the topic is often not terribly pleasant, but it has some good drama. Yes. I was referring, I was talking to a friend about this book and I called it an archaeological soap opera. Yeah. <laughs> Which if you are an archaeologist, you might be like, well, what's different? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I enjoy how real the author is. Mm -hmm. Like he approaches this subject from a very well-researched perspective. And you can tell that he is like, he's taking a very deep dive. And I think he, you can see like his passion shows through mm -hmm. for the subject matter. And I really enjoy that. And then just like the drama and some of the things we're learning that they come straight. I mean, they should come straight out of like a James Bond movie or right. something. It's ridiculous. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it's been fun. I know it's a little bit of a longer book, but I, I think it's well worth a read, especially if yeah. <laughs> this is probably the book that's like, even if you don't really want to get too down into the weeds about archaeology, while this book kind of does, but it's still enjoyable and very approachable. And I think anybody would enjoy it. It might even be a good first kind of dive into the issues with repatriation and stuff. I have appreciated... Like you said, the author clearly understands this, these concepts on a deep level to a point where he can phrase them in just like boil them down to like a very succinct sentence. Yeah. Um, I love how he described like the Moche culture. I'm not going to pull up the quote now. It'll be in episode one, I think, of uh, Stealing History. But basically, you know, it was to our perspective, a lot of that culture wasn't very nice. And he acknowledges that, but then he also basically says that, you know, this was a tactic for trying to make sense of the world. Um, it was an adaptation, even if it's not to our taste, it wasn't, you know, vindictive or evil necessarily. Right. You have to, I think it's an important lesson for judging any culture or group of people past or present. You have to take it within their context mm -hmm. and within their time period and with their, within their understanding of the world. Otherwise... You're introducing a lot of bias into your belief system or what you believe about them, I guess I should say. And he summarizes core archaeological concepts better than any archaeologist I've ever known. And he's not an archaeologist. He's a journalist. But Which yeah. maybe, yeah. And I think him being a journalist, that does lend a really cool perspective to it. And Agreed. It, I don't know that I've read many books written by journalists. I don't know if this is typical of a journalist's writing style, but I've really enjoyed it. Yep. So here's the question, Tristan. Right. Which one 
so far has been your favorite book? That is the question, isn't it? Yeah. I think for the podcast, uh, us discussing it and the discussions we had, my favorite one has been Four Lost Cities. Okay. Like, it's hard for me to decide me too. between Four Lost Cities and Stealing History. I, I think um, Small Things Forgotten is up there, too. But yeah, Four Lost Cities, like, we didn't always like every aspect of it, but that led to some really passionate discussions between us, I think. Now, if I were to give you that list and say, for enjoyment purposes, mm-hmm. not for the podcast, which one would you be, would, would you say was your favorite? For pure enjoyment purposes, it'd be The Dig, because that's kind of what that's written for. Right. Yeah. 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 I would agree with The Dig. And also, for those of you that have read the book, or maybe you've just seen the movie on Netflix, Mm -hmm. if it's still even up on Netflix, but if you haven't read the book and you've just seen the movie, read the book. It's really, really good. And there's a lot, like every book that's made into a movie, there's a lot of details that aren't included in the movie. And there's a couple things that are different in the movie than they are in the book. Right. So check it out. The movie does a pretty good job. It I'll does. I'll give it a lot of props for that. Yeah. But... And I, yeah. And I mean, I, I, every book I've ever read that was turned into a movie, they change it and they have to because right. there's sometimes or oftentimes there's just no way to not be too complicated. Internal monologues are awkward in a movie format. <laughs> yes. Yes, they are. So did you, wait, did you settle on which one was your favorite for the podcast? I would have to say Stealing History. Okay. Yes. I just, I've enjoyed the the stories about like the gold man and, yeah. you know, just some of it. It's just unreal to me. And I, I, you know, like I said, I started reading that first a long time ago and I didn't finish it. And getting back into it and rereading it or, you know, I'm past the point where I stopped the first time I read it, but rereading some of the stuff, I was like, oh my gosh, yeah, I had forgotten about this. Mm-hmm. And it's it's been fun to be able to read it with somebody and discuss it. And I'll say for purely for the skill in the writing itself, Stealing History is by far the most skillful writing yeah. of what we've read so far. For sure. So yes, I definitely enjoy that one. To me, it's... Even though it's not Indiana Jones, it has some aspects or that are like they have that adventure quality to it. Mm. So I don't know. That keeps coming up is just like, you know, the journalist is putting himself out there in danger a lot of times. And just some okay. of the craziness that happens just seems very like it's like if James Bond met Indiana Jones and you just like mushed them together. I was trying to picture Indiana Jones actually in this book and where would he be? And he would definitely be. <laughs> The Westerner taking advantage of locals to yes, meet their heritage. Yes, he would, 100%. So, that's where I was going with that, so I didn't quite know what you meant. <laughs> I was thinking more like the adventure quality. Right, right. But, oh, yeah, Indy would be up there taking full advantage of the people at Sapan. I'll give you a dollar to take me to your golden idol. Yes. You know, kind of thing. <laughs> kind of one last segment we're going to cover today. You know, we talk an awful lot about archaeology, particularly as it's done through fieldwork and as it's dealing with the things. But one of the important concepts to get is that archaeology isn't just the digging. It is a whole process of research and study, analyzation. And then finally, the final step is telling people what you've learned. And at the bare minimum, that needs to take the form of writing a report. Because if you haven't done that, you haven't done archaeology, you haven't done science. However, with time, we are 
as a society at least, coming to realize more and more that that last step should be more than just writing a report. It should be finding ways that we can utilize that information to help other people or to just inform other people about what we're studying and what we're learning. And that is what we are doing here today. That is our jobs now. So we are public archaeologists. And kind of as a shorthand, I tell people to think of Neil deGrasse Tyson or Carl Sagan. Kind of what they are doing for astronomy is what we are trying to do for archaeology. And it's just a lot easier to explain to people than like, say, we're educators because then they think we're teachers, you know, and it's difficult to get the concept across otherwise. Plus, I mean, what person working in a scientific field doesn't want to compare themselves to Neil deGrasse Tyson. So. Right. <laughs> and I think we capture a bit of that enthusiasm for our own fields that yeah, he I think always shows for astronomy too. We might not be as cool or as popular, but we will maybe get there one day. Yeah. <laughs> we can strive. And we'll have fun and we'll we'll talk with people and, and, and everything. So that's what we do in a nutshell. We are primarily focused on that last stage of the whole archaeological process. And so uh, we thought we'd take a little bit to talk about what, how our jobs and how that takes shape in our jobs, that last step. So as hopefully you know, if you've been following this podcast, if not, you are about to, but we work for the Florida Public Archaeology Network, which is a program of the University of West Florida. And we have regions throughout, regional offices throughout the state. And the whole idea is to kind of put an archaeologist within reach of everybody in Florida, citizens, visitors. And we try and essentially fill a gap. Uh, we provide public education and outreach. We also assist uh, the state agencies that are tasked with protecting cultural resources in Florida, mainly the Division of Historical Resources. Of course, Tallahassee is far, far away from a large majority of our state and citizens in our state. So we try to assist them in any way we can. We also assist local governments and like your local historical society museums and things like that. So we do a lot of different things that people don't necessarily equate to archaeology. But like Tristan said, they're that last piece of the puzzle that is necessary in order to do good science. But I, I like to think it's like, the fun part of the job. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we we reach we throughout the year we do, you know, archaeology story times where we're talking to very very young children and teaching them about basic archaeological concepts. And, and one, of, one of my uh if I can go into more yeah, detail yeah, yeah. on that, one of my favorite programs we do is uh, we call it the puzzle of our past. And so it works with the premise or metaphor that our past is a puzzle missing the box and most of the pieces. Archaeology helps us see the picture. And so the whole program then works around this idea and where are the pieces? Why are they missing? And the final uh, activity we do with them, which I love because it fits so well, is we give them little terracotta saucers and they decorate them. We put them in a plastic bag and then they get to smash them. And now they have to try and put them back together like pieces of a puzzle. Yeah. And it, I think, you know, it makes me think of the book we're reading now, Stealing History, because one of Tristan's notorious for going around and sometimes taking little bits of pot and <laughs> making it more difficult for the children. But the point is, like, once you start taking pieces of the puzzle or pieces of the pot away, the puzzle becomes harder to kind of fit back together and understand what's going on. And tr I will say, Tristan's giving me a look right now. 
but he's nice about it. And he always only he, he's very good about selecting which child he think can handle it. And I gave him back. Yes. And he always gives it back. So repatriated. Yes. He repatriates. <laughs> the piece. But we do things like that. We also um, attend, you know, community festivals and we have a bunch of activities we do at festivals with kids and adults. We do a lot of work with like our senior center and giving lectures for their lifelong learning program. I did one on archaeology of beer. And then we went to a brewery and did a tasting and did a tour to see how beer is made today in modern times compared to what I had talked about in my lecture. So that one was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. That was a, yeah. And it wasn't just because of the beer. It was Not like just. the group. They we were had a, a fun time. group of yeah. people. We do all sorts of fun things like that. Now, Tristan, this year, this past year, what was like your favorite event or activity that we did? The Well, I've got several I'm, I'm really pleased with, um, like some of our cemetery programs. Like we do programs training, helping people figure out how to take care of cemeteries, historic cemeteries without damaging them further. I'm really pleased with those. But the one where I was doing, I was having my most fun had to be when we did the local training for folks on how to talk about the past. Tristan, that was going to be mine. Well, you can't steal I mine. I did most of the talking, so I get to take it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so Tristan gave this awesome workshop where we were, this was spurred by a presentation that a very brief presentation I did at a meeting for Tallahassee, where our office is located. Uh, next year, we're celebrating our bicentennial. And I gave this presentation on the difference between interpretation and instruction. Instruction. Thank you. And afterwards, I had a bunch of very panicked historical and genealogical society members coming up to me going, oh, my gosh, I'm supposed to be giving this presentation. And I just realized I'm doing instruction and not interpretation and I need help. And I was overwhelmed. And so I came to Tristan. And I said, Tristan, I have an idea. We should do a workshop. And he jumped on it and did it. And it was amazing. And we ended up with like the most fun group of people ever. They were they were a blast. So they, enthusiastic. Some of the concepts are a little dis difficult to grasp right away, but they got it. Yeah. They worked at it. I could see them processing it. It was a lot of fun. And so, yeah, go ahead. Well, since you took that one... <laughs> <laughs> I would say the the beer one was a lot of fun, but I also really enjoy what we do a festival here in Tallahassee. It's the Tallahassee Science Festival, and it's where pretty much like every scientific organization in this region gets together in downtown Tallahassee, and it's free to the public. They, people come, and you have everything from kids extracting banana DNA to like collecting bugs or whatever you know so it's a lot of fun i really always enjoyed that festival and i feel like we always have some of the best interactions with the public there we see like four to five hundred people in four hours yeah it's, it's exhausting it's intense yeah. <laughs> but it's a lot of fun and so that's just kind of to give people a little bit of an idea of the kinds of things we do and we're always changing or adapting or doing something new we do a lot dealing with how climate change is impacting cultural resources along and along the coast, but also um, in interior Florida and, you know, monitoring those sites, working with state parks to help them with programming. Our office is actually at McClay Garden State Park. So we work with them to do 
interpretive hikes and lectures and all sorts of fun stuff here. And one thing I always tell people, and this applies to you listening as well, is part of our job is to be here as a resource for you. So if you have any questions on archaeology, it doesn't have to be related to this podcast. You can get in touch with us and ask. If we don't know, we'll probably know who does. And so we can help you get those connections there as well. Well, I think speaking of that, like, so as you can imagine, like during the pandemic, when you do public outreach, (laughs) you have to get a little creative because we couldn't do anything in person. So we started doing a lot of virtual content, YouTube videos, um, Zoom lectures. Tristan and another colleague uh, started doing like uh, archaeology video games on Twitch. Twitch. That's kind of what spawned the idea for our podcast, actually, is one of the things we realized with all those virtual programs, even though we really, really miss doing in-person things, it's weird to give a lecture via Zoom. Um, Tristan and I both realized how much we feed off of our audience and like to have the like interactions and you know, just even somebody's facial expression means a lot more in person than it does on the little square on your Zoom screen. But we also realized, wow, we had people attending our lectures from like Iceland and Europe and stuff. And so it broadened our reach, even though we're the Florida Public Archaeology Network, a lot of the concepts we teach fall outside the borders of just Florida. So that was kind of the impetus for our podcast. Even though it didn't come to fruition until after the pandemic. But this was an idea that kind of started from that, essentially. Yeah. And I've loved it. I think it's fun. I've yep. never, it, it's fun to read books outside of a graduate program about your subject matter. Yeah, I'm enjoying this too. You know, we started it and we're just like, well, let's kind of try one and we'll see how we feel about it. And we're still going because we enjoy doing this. And that's kind of sums up our jobs too, really. <laughs> You know, as you're listening to our podcast, if you ever have any questions about the the subject matter of the podcast itself or anything relating to archaeology, hit us up, leave a comment, let us know. We will gladly answer it. And like Tristan said, we're a resource. So if we don't know it, we will find out who does. So that wraps up this episode. We're going to be a little bit shorter than some of our other ones, but we'll be back next month for another regular episode with the conclusion to Stealing History. Also, I don't want to overpromise yet, but I have a special interview potentially lined up with an archaeologist I know personally from Ecuador, who I know has also been very concerned with the antiquities market. So we're going to see if we can get lined up an interview with him, and we'll release that as a special episode, probably alongside uh, the next full episode. And so everyone, hope you had a happy holiday and a good new year and we'll see you next time i know we'll see you next year yeah (laughs) have a good one everybody archaeology books for fun is brought to you by the florida public archaeology network a program of the university of west florida you can find out more about archaeology and about fpn at fpan.us we appreciate any feedback so if you're listening to us as a podcast please leave us a review and if you're watching this on youtube please like and subscribe Thanks for listening.